during the season of Easter, the first reading in our readings for each Sunday, come from the book of Acts to recount the acts of the apostles in the early church as they did their work proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection to the world. And so for this, the second Sunday of Easter, our first reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles, the fourth chapter. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. Christ has risen from the dead. He has given him dominion over the works of his hands. The epistle reading comes from the first letter of St. John, the first and second chapters. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. And the Holy Gospel, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes to us according to St. John, the 20th chapter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, to be honest, I've always felt a little bit bad for Thomas. As an apostle, as far as we know, Thomas did some amazing things. After Jesus' ascension into heaven, Thomas traveled all throughout Asia Minor and all the way over to India, sharing the good news of Jesus and establishing Christian churches all along the way. Thousands upon thousands of people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because of his efforts. And in the end, given the choice between silence or death, Thomas faithfully laid down his earthly life and was martyred for the Christian faith rather than turn away from it. He was a faithful, bold witness of God's word who did amazing things in the lives of many, many people. And yet, what do we remember him as? Doubting Thomas. Because of this one event in our gospel reading today, and you know, that seems kind of unfair. We don't talk about denying Peter or falling asleep and then fleeing when Jesus needed him, Andrew, despite the fact that they clearly did these things. And that doubting moniker, that could fairly be applied to every single one of the disciples. So why is Thomas saddled with it still today? Well, I think it's because of the way that he doubted, the vehemency with which he doubted. When the other disciples told him that they had seen Jesus, Thomas didn't just say, sure, whatevs. He didn't just doubt. He leaned into it completely. He quantified his doubt. He put stringent conditions on what it would take to make that doubt leave him. Unless I see the hands, see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, said Thomas. And so sadly, for thousands of years, despite his faithful preaching and teaching, despite his being the first apostle to recognize and confess Jesus as God after the resurrection... To this day, many people remember him only as Doubting Thomas because of that restrictive little word that he uttered, unless. Unless 
I see this. Unless I do this, I will never believe. Now, grammatically speaking, unless is an adverbial subordinate conjunction. Theologically speaking, it's a big problem. When Thomas says, unless these things happen, I will never believe, what he's doing is demanding proof of God. He's saying, God, if you want something out of me, if you want my faith, well, you better do what I say. You better play by my rules and you better give me what I demand. I mean, he may not have realized it in the heat of the moment, but that little word, unless was Thomas's attempt to put himself in the driver's seat, to be in complete control, and to put himself above God. And it's been this way all throughout history. Those who demand proof of God's existence, those who lay out conditions that God must fulfill to earn their belief, they are using that little unless to have power over God. Unless God gives me some clear evidence of his existence. Unless God speaks to the world so that all can hear. Unless God gives me some kind of sign that he actually exists, we will never believe. Now, never mind the fact that God has already done all of those things. The clear evidence of his existence is our perfectly designed world. He has spoken to the entire world through Scripture, and the clear sign that he is there is our own existence. Those who demand signs like this, they're rarely satisfied either. And the signs that God does give, they're ignored, they're rejected, or they're explained away. And sadly, everyone is guilty of this. Every single one of us has fallen into the pit of unless and tried to take control of God. We might not be as concise or clear as Thomas was or as adamant as an atheist. We usually try to couch it in less extreme language, but it all means essentially the same thing. We'll say things like, God, if you're there, heal my loved one. God, if you love me, please get me out of this mess that I'm in. God, if you just do this one thing for me, I promise I'll go to church more often. We demand proof of God. We tell him that he has to do something for us in order to earn our faith. We set up the big old conditional unless and then sit back to watch God jump through the hoop for us. And if he does, it's never enough to actually satisfy us. There was a lawyer one time who was running late for a very important trial. And as he circled the courthouse for the fourth time, desperately looking for a parking place, he prayed, God, if you just give me a place to park so that I can get there on time, I promise that I will go to church every single Sunday from now on. And at that very moment, A utility worker picked up a set of pylons that were blocking the parking spot right by the front door and waved the lawyer in. And the lawyer was flabbergasted. And so he prayed once more, never mind God, I found one. That's what we do. God gives and we credit it to the world or luck. 
When God provides for us, when he does meet our ridiculous and sinful demands and do things our way, we write it off as luck or we give credit to the doctors or to the government or our own hard work and we set up the next set of stipulations, the next big unless that God must fulfill in order to satisfy us. Where doubting Thomas dropped all his pretenses of control and when Jesus appeared to him, he confessed, my Lord and my God. Too often, we get what we ask for. God gives us something miraculous and we jump right back into our demands and tell God, well, unless you blank, then I'll never believe. Imagine if this was the other way around. Imagine if God said, unless, about you. Unless you quit drinking, I will never forgive. Unless you quit swearing, I will never forgive. Unless you stop gossiping and lying and lusting and loving the world and coveting and doing all the things that you do, I will never forgive. How would you fare in his eyes if he said this about you? What chance would you have of entering into his eternal kingdom? Especially if he kept moving the goalposts the way that we do. If we somehow managed to clean up our lives and stop one sin, only to have him say, oh, well, see, that's not real devotion. Now you have to do this as well, and this, and this, and this. Well, the fact is, we miserable sinners... We deserve to have God slap us with a great big unless all the time. Our doubt, our demands for proof, our wretched sin and disobedience, they deserve to be paid back in kind. God, being holy and perfect, he could and should tell us, unless you are perfect, unless you are without sin, unless you are as holy as I myself am, you will never Enter into my kingdom. And in fact, that's exactly what his word tells us. As sinners, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how well we think we're reining in our sinful desires and actions, we are not good enough. And we deserve only God's wrath and eternal condemnation. God's word is clear. That unless we are utterly spotless and without sin, we will never enter his eternal paradise. And if his word ended there, every single one of us stands condemned before him. And every single person in the world can look forward only to eternal suffering in the fires of hell. But his word does not stop there. Yes, he clearly tells us the painful truth that unless we are holy and perfect, we will never enter into heaven. But then he tells us the glorious truth that by grace, through faith, we are made perfect through the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ, the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. Despite what we deserve, Despite the stipulations and the demands that we wrongly put on God, he puts no unless on our forgiveness. 
There are no hoops that we must jump through, no requirements we must satisfy, no prerequisites to earn his love. Those who hear the word of God and believe it, those who trust in Jesus Christ, no matter how deep our sin might be, no matter how many ridiculous demands of proof we have made of God, those who look to Jesus Christ in faith are declared holy, innocent, and righteous in the eyes of God, cleansed of their sin completely. Whatever we have done wrong, however we have disobeyed, God, our loving Father, forgives us, restores us as his beloved children. He takes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He clothes us in his own perfection and holiness. He makes us worthy of his eternal kingdom by making us spotless, by taking away the guilt of our sin. Not by pretending that we've done no wrong. That's the world's foolish and useless solution. Stop calling sin, sin, and everything is hokey-dokey. That doesn't work. Sin is sin. And God's law doesn't change just because we want it to and because the world says it should. We should feel guilt and shame. We should lament our evil ways. We should mourn and repent of every wicked thought, word, and deed that we commit. And we should seek to do better in our lives. But as we acknowledge and repent of that sin, we trust in the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. We know that our forgiveness comes not because God did away with his righteous law, but because he fulfilled it on our behalf. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in the locked room the evening of the day of his resurrection, what did he say to them? He said, peace be with you. Now some people would have said that this was just a fancy way of saying, hey guys, don't be afraid, which they certainly would have needed since they had barricaded themselves in a locked room and were afraid of the mob coming to kill them, and all of a sudden somebody else is standing among them. But think about what each one of these guys had done the last time they had seen Jesus. They had denied him. They had fled away from him. They had fallen asleep on him. They had abandoned him. They had refused to speak up on his behalf in order to protect their own hides. They had fled and left him to die, even after all their claims of never doing something like that. And so when they recognized that it was Jesus in the room with them instead of just somebody else, I'm pretty sure that their terror went up rather than down. But Jesus says to them, peace be with you. He says, you are forgiven. All the wrong that you've done, all the ways that you've grieved me and failed me, I have paid for it all, and you are forgiven. On the cross, as the disciples were lying and fleeing and cowering, Jesus was paying for those sins and everything else that they had done wrong. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the pains of hell for every single one of us, for all of his creation. He bore all our sin, all our trespasses, all of our guilt upon his own holy, sinless, righteous body. The spotless Lamb of God laid down his life for our sin. He sacrificed himself unto death to pay the penalty of our transgressions. 
He died under the weight of our sin, shedding his blood to cleanse us. And when we look to his cross in faith, his holiness and perfection is given to us so that in the eyes of God, we are now seen as holy, innocent, and righteous, forgiven completely of every wrongdoing because of his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And then, on the third day, when Jesus rose from the grave, we were given not just hope but assurance that God had accepted that sacrifice and our sin had been paid for in full. Jesus died under our sins, but he rose to eternal life to shatter the chains of death that held us. He rolled back the stone to show the world that he was not there, that death had no dominion over him. And then he comes to us by his word, by his sacraments, just as he came to Thomas and all the disciples, and he says to us, peace be with you. He does not say, unless you do this, you will still languish and die under your sin. No. He says, you are forgiven. All your sin has been paid for. There is nothing left for you to do, for I have cleansed you by my own blood. By the grace of God, there is no unless attached to our redemption. Jesus Christ has done it all, and it is foolish of us to demand that he do more to prove himself to us. He has suffered and died in your place. He has sacrificed himself to redeem you from sin, death, and the devil. He has delivered to you his grace through the waters of baptism and through his own body and blood. He has spoken to you by his word to assure you that all who look to him in faith will rise again to new life in his perfect paradise of heaven. What more could we possibly demand of him? What silly unless could we base our faith upon? What further proof could we possibly need? For by the cross of Jesus Christ, by his empty tomb, You are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.